When Blanche finally meets a good guy, she becomes the apple of his eye, though she fails to see what he sees in her. Keeping themselves busy, Sophia, Rose, and Dorothy have become coaches for a peewee football team. But is the weight of the sport too much for the girls to bear? Will Blanche set her sights on love? Will Sophia lead the team to victory? Will we ever learn how Dorothy didn't know about the generations-old flu cure? All of that and more in today's episode, Blind Date. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party. Our story starts with Sophia, who is on the couch in a pink and blue dress and pink cardigan. She is voraciously flipping the pages of her TV guide, nearly ripping the thin paper to shreds. When Dorothy, in a white shirt covered by a purple and black, very hearty sweater, inquires about Sophia's mood, she learns her mother is miffed because Pat Sajak is no longer hosting Wheel of Fortune. Pat Sajak is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records for hosting over 7,000 episodes of Wheel of Fortune, a job he began back in 1981. He recently announced that the next season, which is the show's 41st, will be his last. Coco and I aren't sure who should host next, but we also have mixed feelings about Vanna. Not that she should lose her job because a man is quitting, but she's kind of like a yarn-selling billionaire, so it would be nice to start totally fresh. Anyway, after Pat took over for Love Connection's Chuck Woolery, the show's original host, he hosted the daytime version for a few years before the syndicated episodes began. Then, in January of 1989, Pat wanted to host a late-night talk show, so he had to give up hosting duties, but only for the daytime episodes. From Television City in Hollywood, Chevy Chase, Joan Van Ark, The Judge, Michael Gross, Peter Uberoff, comic Dennis Wolfberg, and Pat Gets a Physical, plus Tom Scott and the band, along with me, The talk show was not exactly what one would call thrilling, so it ended after just 16 months. To scratch that itch, Pat became Larry King and Regis Philbin's substitutes when either of them weren't available. His hosting duties didn't end there. The super conservative Pat would end up with a show on Fox News in the early aughts and a sports radio show. Don't feel bad for all of his shows failing or for his retirement. He has been a director of Eagle Publishing, a conservative company that was on the board of directors for the Trump-supporting think tank, the Claremont Institute. A coven of geniuses. <laughs> yes, I believe that's their tagline. Well, did you have something to add about Pat Sajak, Coco? He's great at Wheel of Fortune. That Pat Sajak. <laughs> He's great at Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. 
His first guest was Chevy Chase. Oh, God. And Chevy Chase was in full career plummeting mode. Mm. He was promoting Fletch Lives, the name of which he wouldn't even, he was like joking about, like that he was even doing it. Oh, boy. And he seemed to actively be uh, disdainful towards Pat Sajak. Yeah, it's like, how can you make fun of a thing that you are the headliner on? Fletch hates. (laughs) And the fun thing is, just four years later, he would have his own late night talk show that would notoriously bomb even worse than Pat Sajak, so... Karma. Donald Glover hates you. And that's not what you want. <laughs> Never. I want him to love me. Oh, yeah. In all the ways. Oh, you know what? Maybe tonight before we go to bed, I'll just talk about Donald Glover for a little while. Get you hot. Oh, yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> be like, he was great as Lando Calrissian. A lot of people shared Sophia's opinion. Why would I watch the wheel spinning guy talk with someone like war criminal Henry Kissinger about alleviating hostility betwixt countries? For her, it makes as much sense as having boxer Mike Tyson host the PBS program featuring hoity-toity adaptations of classic literary work, Masterpiece Theater. If Sophia seems extra spicy, it's because she's extra gassy. She recently consumed a frozen diet meal of cheesy broccoli, a deadly combo. The digestive discomfort makes her wonder if spokeswoman Lynn Redgrave has any friends. Lynn Redgrave was actually a member of the distinguished acting dynasty, the Redgrave family. She was a Broadway and film star, darling, earning an Oscar nomination, two Golden Globe wins, a BAFTA nomination, Emmys, Tonys, and Grammys. I could go into the details of the shows, movies, and musicals she was in, but I feel I only need to mention a single project, the National Lampoon HBO short film collection, Disco Beaver from Outer Space. So how did this British thespian become a Weight Watchers spokesperson? Well, she gained fame from her Emmy nomination on the TV show House Calls. That was the good part. The bad was that she had to sue the show when they fired her for bringing her baby to the set so she could breastfeed. The suit was dismissed. She then used her fame to get some commercial work, which eventually led to the diet plan Weight Watchers. She even wrote a book with the title inspired by the Weight Watchers tagline, This is living, not dieting. Chicken sweet and sour, southern fried or cacciatore, spaghetti, ravioli, and the ziti macaroni, this filet or fish or crattin. Oh, now what have I forgotten? Weight Watchers. This is living. You might know Lynn and her famous sister Vanessa from the horrible remake of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1991. I watched Whatever Happened to Baby Jane for the first time, I think last year, maybe two years ago with you. Who knows in COVID time anymore? And I loved it. It's now one of my favorites. We quote it constantly. (laughs) But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. And the remake of it was made in the mid-90s. I feel like I think it was filmed in California. For television, right? Looks like for television. It, It proves why actors matter and why directors matter seems kind of like the like it's going to turn into a Cinemax porno <laughs> level of filming or the uh, and a, music. A daughter oh. will go missing. Yeah. Yeah. Not without my Blanche. Yes. <laughs> and Lynn Redgrave is uh, she's so bad in this. Mm. 
because it's a great story and it's classic. But when you don't have the two kind of biggest stars of the time and that they had an actual feud, all of that mattered. Yeah. And I I believe the Redgrave sisters that they didn't have that. Yeah. So there's 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 at its inception, there's no reason for it unless you could find two other actors who had that kind of relationship. Who would that be now? Two actresses. Oh, that or are female, like feuding. That like hate each other. Yeah, I can't even. I can't even think that we don't do that anymore. Yeah, it's not as bad, at least, no. or outwardly. Yeah. You know, if you're gonna do that, I guess the novelty of that one was that they were actual sisters, but they even filmed it in a house that kind of looked like that. It looked like an old Hollywood house. Yeah. And so it's just a full-on remake, and it's like if you're not gonna do it shot for shot and knock it out of the park. Just do it your own way. It was hard to it was hard to get through to find a clip. Yeah. I hated it so much. This little girl has just turned out her light. Make sure her dreams are a colorful sight. I'm going to give you a seven out of a possible ten for performance and zip for originality. Why remake movies that don't need it? Like Psycho did not need a remake. No one was like, you know, that movie was pretty good, but it, it missed a couple elements that could have made it better. No, it well, was, it was. It, 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 it was it, holding its own for 40 years. I beg to differ. It needed the addition of to the shower scene, Anna Heche's <laughs> hole. Yes, that's what was missing. Which you can fully see. <laughs> and I saw on the big screen, <laughs> biggest hole I've ever seen. Those remakes are frustrating for those reasons. Choose something like Race with the Devil which has a really good foundation, but is very time-capsuled and maybe doesn't hold up. So if you remade it now, it could be done in a timeless way or at least an up-to-date way. And then you make this incredible movie when you started with a strong foundation instead of going, oh, yes, uh, a perfect film, great. I'll, uh, I'll just try to do that again. I can, I can one-up that. I can fix that. <sighs> no. Interrupting the Sajak fart fest is Rose, who, in a yellow baseball cap and matching windbreaker-inspired top, flowing tan pants, and kitten heels, is returning home from football practice. To say the least, she is not happy. Her team is a bunch of lazy babies, and she's had it. Before her rant can go on, two very young boys in blue and yellow uniforms, who look to be about nine years old, come in with Coach Rose's whistle. Rose appreciates their help and tells them to run along home. When they only walk out of the door, she reminds them she said to run, even adding in the oh boy of calling them panty waists. Vocabulary.com tells us that the original use of panty waist was an actual garment worn by children. It was a short pant that would button to the waist of a shirt. Later, it became a euphemism for a childish or effeminate male. After seeing the youngins Rose was coaching, Dorothy is aghast at how harsh she's treating them. It's just a game, and they're just kids. Rose is quick to agree, saying that she does have some regrets about volunteering for the position since it's requiring so much work. 
she really needs some assistance. Sophia is quick to add that what Rose really needs help with is putting on her lipstick. She does a worse job at makeup than Emmett Kelly. Emmett Kelly was the clown of all clowns performing as Weary Willie. When you see a hot dog bun-shaped mouth painted on a clown or a little clown figurine for sale in the back of your grandparents' TV magazine, it's either Emmett Kelly or someone imitating him. He appeared in circuses, plays, movies, TV shows, and fun fact, when it was time to film Halloween, the shape's mask options were down to two, Captain Kirk or Emmett Kelly. Kirk's was just a little bit creepier, so it won out. Oh, aren't you a sad clown? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the first clown's name that comes to my mind is Emmett Kelly. And Emmett Kelly it is. I would just say one serious word. I had a lot of fun working with the circus last year and met Mr. Kelly then. And he's a very remarkable gentleman. I suppose his modesty is in a way uh, born into him, but it's enforced also by his silence. He was a cartoonist. He's a fine writer, beside being probably the greatest clown there is today. And uh, we think it was wonderful of you to come and spend a little time with us. And so, Mr. Kelly, for all of us, may I say thank you? Wonderful to have you with us. And would you say goodnight to the panel? That hot dog shaped, like Krusty the Clown mouth. Mm -hmm. And his expressive, his face is so expressive. And everything he does is funny because he constantly looks like he just finished crying. Yes. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> So if you go to official Halloween movies, mm -hmm. uh, Instagram, they posted like last year, they posted a picture of the mask. You can just Google it. I could see why it would be so scary, but the big roundness of the nose, I think, wouldn't have worked. The rest of it's horrifying because it has kind of his furrowed <gasps> brow and wrinkled head and crow's feet and frowny face. So it is very scary. <laughs> But the roundness of the nose would have been too goofy. I think it looks too much like a regular human being. The shape's mask is otherworldly. Yeah, it's like what uh, what an alien thinks a face looks like. On that note, Sophia is out of there, hopefully to go relieve some gas in another room. Even Rose noticed how grouchy she was, but Dorothy won't torture her with the details. Suddenly, Rose comes up with an idea. She needs help with coaching, and Dorothy is sitting right in front of her. So why doesn't Dorothy become the assistant coach? Her first response is to reject the offer because of Rose's extremely competitive nature. But Rose promises she's no longer that person. She just wants the kids to have fun, but she can't do it without some help. Assured Rose won't be a maniac about winning, Dorothy hesitantly agrees. This delights Rose, who then goes into a competitive rant about how great her team is going to be now and how many butts they're going to kick. In fact, they'll make those other loser kids eat dirt for breakfast. When Rose catches Dorothy looking at her with a, well, that sounds pretty competitive look, she stops herself and rephrases her threat as a good thing. You know, dirt for breakfast, because breakfast is an important meal. Flowing through the room like a turquoise goddess is Blanche, her pants and cover are seafoam green and made of heavenly silk as they cover her silk baby pink blouse. Without stopping for a second, she crosses the room, asking Rose about practice while also sharing she has no time and they'll have to talk later. But Dorothy won't let her leave. She knows she's going out with that Tom Gallagher and that guy is a jerk. He even stood Blanche up more than once. For Blanche, there is more to Tom than what everyone else sees. 
though she can't go into the specifics as to what that is as she is yet to experience it. Besides, all she cares about is that he doesn't put up a fuss when she orders an expensive dinner. There's more to it than that, so Dorothy stops Blanche yet again. Before questions can be asked, Blanche opens up. She knows that Tom is a scumbag, but she doesn't have a lot of dating options at the moment, so she's just going to stick with what she can get. That's not the best plan, though, as it seems to have been the same one Bush Sr. went with when picking Dan Quayle as the vice president. Back to the bar Blanche found Clayton in a few episodes back, we find Blanche sitting at the bar top. Ernie, the bartender, is happy to help her with another drink, but he needs to tell her something. Every time he opens his mouth, though, she interrupts him. That's because she knows what he has to say. Stupid Tom called the stander up again. He was nice enough to say, though, that he would cover her tab. Ernie is being played by Alan Cross, who had 26 acting credits, some of which were Rugrats, Assault on Precinct 13, Three's Company, Cagney and Lacey, Highway to Heaven, Matlock, Falcon Crest, Cheers, and La La. Speaking of him being a voice on Rugrats, all I can think of with Pat Sajak is the Rugrats Pat Sajak, who was very scary looking. But it was just a very, you should Google the picture. Oh my lord. <laughs> very scary. Every image of him is very scary. That seriously is like a, like that, one of those creepypasta images of like the yes. Momo lady or whatever with yes. the creepo eyes. Holy. Do you know who I am? That's right. I'm TV personality Pat Sajak. Do you have any idea why I should be here at your home, 446 Braintree Lane? Sajak Slam! Next to Blanche is a handsome man who couldn't help but overhear her situation. As he tries to converse with her, she is quick to stop him. She isn't some heartbroken floozy that's just going to give it up because she was stood up. Okay, chill out, Blanche. This guy was just hoping to bond since he too was stood up. Realizing she was being a darned fool, she apologizes and the two are formally introduced. Using his acting and voiceover skills, Edward Winter, who is playing John Quinn, had 121 roles in his 46-year career. Maybe he got the Golden Girls gig because he had been in a film called Big Daddy. He was also in Mannix, The Bob Newhart Show, The Bob Crane Show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Phyllis, Maud, Charlie's Angels, Alice, Soap, Love Boat, MASH, Lou Grant, The Greatest American Hero, Dallas, Falcon Crest, Cagney and Lacey, The A-Team, Hotel, Jake and the Fat Man, Columbo, Who's the Boss, Night Court, Empty Nest, Saved by the Bell, Seinfeld, Angry Beavers, Duckman, and Ah, Real Monsters. And his longest-running role was that of Colonel Sam Flagg on MASH. With intelligence, right? I have nothing to do with intelligence. Better. You won't get worry lines. You're dumb. Very dumb. But you've met your match in me. <laughs> you, Major, are here to stay. Right here, Shrink. Where we can make sure you remain loyal to the country that's going to hound your every step. You're some guy, Colonel Flagg. Yes, I am. Sadly, Edward lost his battle with Parkinson's in 2001. Have you ever heard of the Malaysian chest implosion torture? No, sir. Good. Because there's no such thing. Yet. Just like Blanche's brother, Monty, Edward got his start at the Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. That was just the start of his stage career. He would eventually be nominated for two Best Actor Tonys, once for Cabaret and another for Promises, Promises. Blanche and John quickly connect and commiserate about being ditched at their ripe old age of young. 
Blanche is sure, now that Tom has canceled four times, that he must have found a younger, hotter girl to be with. John is sure that that isn't possible. (laughs) So is Blanche. Tom must have found someone that was just younger. This has John convinced he is not going to be going on any dates for some time. Blanche is quickly converted to dating celibacy as well, and the pair cheers their glasses to commemorate, which causes a slight spill of wine. So John asks for any good dry cleaner recommendations from Blanche. Well, she knows the dry cleaner the dry cleaner goes to, so that's how good this guy is. What happened to Andre? What happened to Andre? (laughs) Andre. How's Andre? Andre. You really embarrassed me tonight at Red Lobster. As she writes the cleaner's info down, John shares he is just happy that it was red wine and not white, since he spilled red meat on the same jacket earlier. Um, I just, ew. I mean, if you had like kind of a raw steak, so you got like maybe blood on you and sauce and you're in Miami. Ew. Anyway, John wouldn't want the dry cleaner to think he was gauche or unsophisticated by having white wine with red meat. Tickled by his little joke, Blanche takes her leave. Before she can get out the door, John has already changed his mind about no longer dating and asks Blanche for her number. Conveniently, she too had changed her mind and hadn't given him the dry cleaner's number, but her own. With a cutesy giggle, Blanche is gone and John wraps up at the bar. Saying goodnight to bartender Ernie, John is then handed his collapsible white cane, which he uses due to his visual impairment. The next morning, the ladies are hosting a weigh-in for their football team. Sophia, in her multicolored plaid shirt and yellow cardigan, is manning the scale, which she reads off to Dorothy, who is wearing gray pants and a purple top. The line is being managed by Rose, who is still wearing her hat, but now with a teal sweatshirt and white pants. The first boy is Wade, and he's one pound over the 70-pound minimum to play. The second boy, at 92 pounds, is then body-shamed by Sophia, who tells him to not eat so many lasagna sandwiches. Yikes. The last boy steps up. With his arms crossed, he gets on the scale. By two pounds, he meets the requirement. Once Dorothy discovers the books he was hiding in his jersey, his weight drops to 68. Ugh. And he's not eligible to play. Busted, the boy apologizes to Coach Rose for getting caught. She tries to play dumb, but everyone knows that this scheme fits right into her competitive nature. She didn't tell that boy to use the books to study, and we all know it. Tommy, the first boy, isn't listed, but Freddie was played by Paul Tennon, who also appeared in Baby Talk. Playing Billy, the too-small-to-play boy, was Christopher Kent Hill. He was on Webster twice before the girls. And Golden Girls is not the only show to recycle their actors. This kid played Bailey and Billy on Webster. He then went on to appear on Full House, The Gifted One, Valerie, Defending Your Life, Civil Wars, There Goes the Neighborhood, The Wonder Years, Danger Theater, and Roseanne. Because he's underweight, Billy is disqualified from playing in the big game. Dorothy is not pleased with Rose's example that she's giving the boys to lie, cheat, forget about the rules, just do whatever you need to to win, which Rose is fine with because Billy's the best player and his weight could cost them the game. Teacher Dorothy doesn't care. She knows that kids like him need structure and rules and good leadership. It's not like Dorothy was keeping him from playing as a punishment. It was for his own safety. He's small, and if he was to get slammed by someone as big as Freddie, well, it would hurt. 
As she said, little bodies don't like big bodies on top of them. To which Sophia adds, it's the reason actor Raymond Burr was never married. Boo to all this body shaming, Sophia. Also, plot whoopsies, Raymond Burr was married to actress Elizabella Ward from 1948 until their divorce in 1952. The divorce might have had something to do with Raymond being gay. He ended up finding a life partner in Robert Benavides, who was also an actor. Once they got together in 1960, he left acting and produced 21 of Raymond's Perry Mason movies. You didn't kill Thompson. But you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Matt Thompson! I killed him! The happy couple would go on to own an orchid garden and a California vineyard. They were together for 33 years until Raymond passed away in 1993. As the girls sit in a frustrated silence, Ellen bursts in. Look at you. Even your sickness was a lie. Well, it worked, didn't it? Oh, my bad. That's not Ellen Burstyn. That's Blanche bursting into the room in a stunning blue and purple dress. And she needs advice. Say no more. Sophia is the queen of advice. So she recommends Blanche wear half the amount of makeup and double the amount of underwear. Unfazed, Blanche wants to know if the earrings that she chose are good for a dinner date. With a huff, Dorothy is already fed up, assuming Blanche's date is with Tom. But it's actually with John, the man from the bar. They ended up talking on the phone and he asked her out. Because when Blanche wants to get a man, she doesn't stand on ceremony or, as Sophia adds, nor does she stand on the floor. Now that she knows it's not Tom, Dorothy is delighted for Blanche. Rightfully so. Blanche sees a lot of potential in John, and what she likes the most is that he's not Tom. When the doorbell rings, Blanche scampers off, asking the girls to keep him company while she finishes getting ready. With a smile, Rose rises to the occasion and off her butt to get to the door. When she opens the door and John, who is looking very dapper in his suit, asks for a hand, Rose gives him one by applauding. Even John can tell pretty quickly that Rose must be from the south side and he gets his white cane out to assist him. Now that Rose understands what he means by needing assistance, Rose helps John inside the house where Dorothy quickly introduces herself. Nearly screaming, Sophia takes the opportunity to introduce herself as well, not as a roommate or as Dorothy's mother, but as the stunning 22-year-old cousin that's staying with them. Since John's vision was not brought up by Blanche, the girls pretty quickly realize that Blanche has no idea, which is made fully apparent when she returns to the living room and before she can register the cane or everyone's faces, she starts to twirl, asking not only how she looks, but if she's the most adorable thing he's ever seen, followed by asking if he is blinded by her beauty. In a moment reminiscent of her introduction to Father Frank, Blanche has to be begged to stop, and when she does, her breath is nearly knocked out of her when she realizes what's going on, what she has said, and what she hadn't noticed at the bar. Oh my God. Sophia is gracious enough to ask Blanche if she would like something to drink now that she has put her foot in her mouth. To say one has put their foot in their mouth is an idiom that goes back to the 1800s. WritingExplained.com shares that there was a phrase, put one's foot in it, and the it was mud or manure, which developed into foot in your mouth, which is usually limited to speech, as in you've said something embarrassing, so you've got your foot in your mouth. 
It may also be related to the mostly bovine illness, foot and mouth disease. With a giggle, John asks Blanche about the sensitive subject. Well, of course she noticed he was blind. She's not blind. Boy, this Southern Belle really needs to figure out how to stop saying the wrong thing around differently abled people. Shrimp! Trying to correct herself, she says that there's nothing wrong with being visually impaired. Not that there's anything to really rave about with it either. Moving on to their date, she tells John how much she's going to love the view of the water from the restaurant they'll be going to. Realizing she's choking on her other foot now, she turns to the girls with a look of, I I don't know what to do before leaving. It's practice time at the house. Rose, in a purple sweater over a white shirt, has come into possession of a Glengarry Glen Ross-inspired chalkboard, and she's running plays or other sports-like things. All of the boys are on the floor in their uniform, except for too little to play Billy. Our friend Freddie has a question about the play. Which one is he on the board? Sophia, in a pink dress and white cardigan, gives him a tip for remembering. The other team is the X, and you are the O, just like how many points you've earned. Poor Freddy. Body and athleticism shamed? Dorothy, in white pants and a yellow cover, watches on as Coach Rose doodles over the X's and O's with lines and directions and blocks and screens and other garbled nonsense. Rose has nearly covered the X's and O's with scribbles, and Dorothy can't take it. Alan starts barking that this is peewee football, not the war plans of D-Day. Your Honor, tomorrow the prosecution will present a videotape that will not only corroborate every state's witness, but will refute every statement the defendant has made and show that in addition to the crime charge, the defendant has perjured himself before this court. Oh, that wasn't Ellen. That was an annoyed Dorothy. D-Day was the landing on the beaches of Normandy during World War II, which occurred on June 6, 1944. It's famous for having been the largest seaborne invasion in history. Soon after, France and Western Europe were liberated. Simplifying things, Rose revisits her last game and how a player on the other team went unblocked. Freddie helpfully points out that if Billy had been allowed to play, he would have done said blocking. Rose is well aware of how impactful Billy's absence was, She doesn't want to call Dorothy out directly, but she looks towards her and asks the boys to follow her eyes. The boys are excused and they start to leave, but Freddie has another idea to get Billy back on the team. Maybe he, the lasagna lover, and Billy, the little guy, could weigh together, then just divide the number by two. That way, they'll each weigh about 80 pounds. Dorothy commends Freddie's mathematics, but it won't work. Disappointed, Freddie leaves, but not before stopping to give Rose an I told you so about that plan working. Rose wouldn't have to set these kids up to do such shenanigans if Dorothy would just let Billy play in the big game tomorrow. Dorothy isn't being a bad guy. She's just following the rules. However, she might be the one missing out on tomorrow's game. She went to practice in the rain, I guess a Miami thunderstorm, and is starting to feel under the weather. Rose is also not feeling 100% herself and worries aloud that the players might have caught it too. But Sophia quells those fears. Those kids can't catch a ball, so they certainly couldn't catch a bug. And as we've said so many times because these girls are sick left and right, you can't get sick just from being out in the weather. 
Coming into the living room at a snail's pace is Blanche, wearing another teal outfit, this one with a saggy tummy blouse and flowing pants. Casually buffing her nails, she shares with the girls that her date with John was perfect. They went to dinner, followed by the symphony. And this isn't her first date she's talking about. This was like their sixth or seventh, as they've gone out every night that week. In a supportive yet envious way, just as mothers do, Sophia's happy for Blanche. Why, John is just the type of man she had always wanted for her daughter. He's perfect. Rose agrees. He's sophisticated and smart and handsome. Well, for Sophia, the upsell was that he was blind. I guess that way Dorothy could wear as many backless clothing items as she wanted. Sophia leaves and Blanche answers the now ringing phone. With a deeper, more seductive voice, she delights in hearing who's on the other side. She's giddy to share that she is available for a date that night, leaving Rose and Dorothy confused as to who she might be talking to. Their plans are finalized, and she agrees to get drinks at 7 p.m. that night. Dorothy knows that tone. That must have been Tom the stand-up Gallagher. Well, it was, and Blanche is going out with him as soon as she cancels her date with John. The girls are baffled. You're dating this great guy. Why would you want to even try to go out with a jerk like Tom? First, Blanche has every right to be dating whoever she wishes. Besides, she knows the relationship with John will never work because he's blind. With a leave me alone, she storms off to her room and Rose triumphantly stands up and follows her, shouting that Blanche is the blind one when it comes to other people. She's the one that can't see the value. Well, the players might not be able to catch anything, but Rose and Dorothy certainly can and have. The flu has struck the Richmond home again. Curled up in their variation of blue robes, Rose is presenting Sophia's home remedy for them to try. Dorothy is, unsurprisingly, pessimistic, but Rose is hopeful that the soup-like concoction they are about to have will allow them to get back to their feet and make it to the big game because one should always be out in public and definitely hanging out with people, especially children, when you have the flu or any other airborne illness. In the bowls before them is a mix of oregano, garlic, red peppers, chicken fat, and lard, a.k.a. thick pig fat. It sounds, looks, and probably tastes disgusting, but Rose says that Sophia swears by it. When Sophia comes into the room, though, The directions that Rose missed or was never told are shared. Yeah, the glop has a 100% success rate, but she's never seen it used via ingestion. She usually just threw a glob on the vaporator and let the aroma open her airways. I'm not so sure. I feel like you would just make your home smell like bacon. Realizing they won't be able to make the game, Rose agrees with Dorothy and they decide that they're going to have to forfeit. That F-word is one Sophia will not stand for. Getting dramatic, a la Frank Capra, the film director best known for It Happened One Night, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and It's a Wonderful Life, she tells Rose, a now honorary member of her family, for the added dramatic flair, that no one in her family quits. She won't allow it. She will be the coach now. That's kind of hard for Dorothy to believe. Her mother doesn't really know anything about how to play football. Well, of course she does. It's just like shopping in Sicily. You hit somebody, you grab some pigskin, be it ball or Gucci purse, and you run like crazy. Picking up whatever coach they have for the moment, Freddie is at the door and Sophia is gone, off to win the big game. Rose and Dorothy appreciate Sophia's willingness to help, although Rose adds the caveat that if she does end up costing them the game, 
she'll punch her heart out. Happy to not have to leave home, the girls go into the kitchen for tea and snacks. It's there they bump into Blanche, who is looking like a student pilot in tan pants, a green jacket, and yellow polo. Her energy is high, and she needs to talk to the girls. She feels like a fool for how she spoke to them the night before. Not having the energy to deal with Blanche's blanchiness, Dorothy doesn't really want to talk. Anytime they take the time to give her advice, she just ends up doing whatever she wants. So why bother? Rose agrees. They already told her how they feel about John. This is different, though. Blanche wants to explain why she was fearful of a relationship with him. It's not because he's blind, as in he's incapable or less than. It's because she didn't know how to manage a relationship without her visual sex appeal. It's her go-to move for everything, from getting laid to getting out of a parking ticket. Without that, John would only be dating her for her personality, which was something she didn't know how to square. Having a night out with Tom only reminded Blanche of how wonderful a man John was and that having sex appeal or vision didn't matter if you didn't enjoy your company. With her head clear, she's realized that she wants to try to make it work with John, so she's going to go call him right away. But first, she wonders what illness the girls have exactly. Instead of giving an easy answer like some sort of flu crap, Rose goes through the symptoms. Puffy eyes, skin blotches, swollen cheeks, heart palpitations. Diarrhea. Blanche hopes they appreciate the heart palpitations. It's the only symptom different from their day-to-day life. We're at a new location, a huge locker room inside of a mysterious school, and Coach Sophia is getting the boys ready to play. Her plan is to keep it on the ground and then throw it in the air. She then feels it's appropriate to share with a group of 9- and 10-year-old boys that down on the ground and an air attack was how she made love to Sal for 60 years. She forgot to mention the marinara. The boys take it to the field, but poor Billy is left behind and he's bummed. If Sophia would let him, he could be out playing. She won't, but she does understand his frustrations when it comes to size. No, she's not going to tell another story about making love to Sal, thank goodness. She's talking about her size and how small she is. At four foot eleven, she could be confused for Billy Barty, who we have met before in Rose's dream when she was considering marrying Dr. Jonathan Newman. You lack faith in yourself. More than anyone in the village, you have the potential to be a great sorcerer. Now, when you're out there, listen to your own heart. There are nearly a hundred different forms of dwarfism. During the convention, Casey's parents learn he has the same kind as actor Billy Barty. We think we just have a physical limitation. Uh, Like we say in our organization, the, the only space barrier you have to conquer is the one between your ears. However, Billy stood at just three foot nine due to cartilage hair hypoplasia dwarfism. Sophia is able to point out the positives of being smaller. You never bump your head. You don't outgrow your clothes. And you're perpetually cute. For example, Danny DeVito, America's sweetheart, was at peak popularity at this time. The late 80s saw him starring in Throw Mama from the Train, Twins, Ruthless People, and War of the Roses. He may not be the most handsome man, but his cuteness is heightened, pun intended, by being only four foot ten. I did not know. That I he's didn't shorter know, than Sophia? I didn't know he was under, four, under five feet. That's adorable. <laughs> he's three inches shorter than my mom. Well, now, whenever I think of Danny DeVito, there's a a scene in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where he 
chugs a beer, mm-hmm. throws his head back and belches and the beer comes out as well, foaming like out of his mouth like Ew. an animal. It's my favorite clip of that show and it makes me feel ill. I love it. His shirt's open. It's really sick. sick. Uh, it sounds like this. Uh, that is a good idea. I like the way you're thinking. Yeah. God, you are disgusting. A disgusting animal. Sophia goes on. It's totally okay to be on the smaller side. What isn't okay is cheating. So Billy can't play. What makes him a bigger person is doing the right thing. With her motivational speech over, Sophia hands the boy a huge meatball hoagie the size of his arm. She tells him to eat it and to get dressed. Those two pounds will put him right at the weight that he needs to be, and he should be able to play. However, he could still get hurt, and boy, oh boy, I would not want to be on the sidelines when that thing hits his guts or gets hit out of him. Okay, well, if you're going to do the Danny DeVito clip, then do it there also. We're back to the bar where Blanche, after calling John's secretary, has found him and wants to talk. She doesn't want to just apologize for breaking their date. She wants to explain herself. His blindness brings out an insecurity that she wasn't aware of. What can be loved about her besides her looks? John doesn't help things by saying that he's actually glad that he'll never have to look at Blanche. She's surprised to hear that, but he continues. He gets to take the best parts of a person and turn them into a visual that he sees them as. For example, since Blanche makes him laugh so much, she must have a wonderful smile. And she does. She must have stunning eyes because she's thoughtful and intelligent. She does. And she must have a bit of a booty because she loves music and dancing. I mean, that's not so much a visual as something that he can just find out for himself. Blanche agrees to all of his visuals, well, except for the butt thing. You see children in the 1980s and 90s, or basically any time before Sir Mix-a-Lot and J-Lo, having any kind of curves or a booty was frowned upon. Nowadays, Blanche would be one of the first in line for a BBL. That's a Brazilian butt lift. After some laughter and understanding, the two agree to get back to dating, starting on Monday. Well, Monday is when those two have a date because right now, John actually has a date with Elaine, who is being played by Leslie Glassford. Her only acting credit is this one, but she produced the film Uncommon Negotiator, and she is a music lover. And not just because Blanche said so, alluding to her big booty, but she was an actual singer of religious tunes. Here she is singing Sweet Brotherly Love. All in all, this is a sweet moment where Blanche has been honest about her feelings, being vulnerable to a man that she's dating and even happy to leave him as his new date arrives. With how cool she was about him dating other women, especially since they met over both not wanting to date anymore, I wouldn't be surprised if John couldn't stop thinking about Blanche while on his date with Elaine. That evening, back at the house, Rose and Dorothy are sitting on the couch, greeting Blanche as she comes home. She is delighted after speaking with John, but is surprised to see that the girls are still up. Well, they aren't still up. They're just now up after being in bed all day. Dorothy's tone surprises Blanche. 
since when is it a bad thing to be in bed all day? Also arriving home is Sophia and the apparent parentless group of scoundrels she calls a football team. Announcing that they are the victors, Rose nearly screams with joy that they won the game. Never one to let anyone have a moment, Sophia corrects her. Oh, no, we didn't win. We're the victors because we've all changed our name to Victor. J.K. Simmons, they won the big game and now they're going to go broke giving all of these kids ice cream. Thinking her mother might have bended the rules to win, Dorothy inquires about Billy. Sophia starts to play dumb, so dumb that Rose starts to describe Billy. She doesn't need any help. She knows who he is. He did technically make the weight, and he did play for a moment, but that Sando actually caused him to have cramps, so he had to sit out. It never mattered because the team was good enough without him. Well, the team won, according to Rose, because of her discipline. No, it was Dorothy teaching them team spirit. No, it was the statue of Mussolini play. Sophia had them run. Inspired by the despicable, underhanded, and fascist leader Benito Mussolini, who we've mentioned on several occasions, Sophia had the entire team sack the quarterback on the first play. Then he was out and injured, which made things easier for Sophia's team. Sure, that's in bad taste, but so was everything Mussolini did. Coco, you've been quiet this episode. This was a first viewing, yes? It was, as far as I can recall. And... Yeah, I thought it was a fine episode. I really loved that part at the end where Blanche and John are talking. I really do appreciate her vulnerability there. Mm -hmm. And her performance right there is just perfect. Yeah. The, the scenes where she's really into the person that she's dating, she is able to uh, she's able to display that. That comes across so well. Yes. And it feels incredibly authentic. Agreed. And I really loved the John Quinn character. Yeah, he's I, very cool. I loved, I watched a bunch of MASH clips for his character, <laughs> who's like a CIA operative, a completely self-serious CIA operative who's also dumb. <laughs> and he says the funniest <laughs> things, shouting with that with that great like 50s voice. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's a great, great character. And yeah, I really loved him. It was great. Yeah. I, I, I became a fan doing the research. And then when he popped up in the show, I was like, oh my God, yeah, that guy. I love Yay! that guy. Yeah. He was awesome. Yeah. He's very endearing. It's honestly uh, one of many of Blanche's good guys that I'm bummed that we don't get to have more time with. Yeah. He gives me the same feeling as the guy who was the chef yeah. the, in the Navy. Jake. Yes. Yeah. Where I just, yeah, I just am in love with these guys. They're just so substantial. Yeah. And I feel like John isn't often on the list because there's usually conversation, you know, which guy should she have stayed with? It's always Jake. But I think, John, the way they so quickly connected and they weren't kind of bitching about being stood up. They're just like, oh, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And they just had such a great connection. And I love the idea of maybe she could have dated for a while this guy who countered everything she was. You know, it would have been interesting to see her kind of manage that if there had been uh like a small arc with that character yeah. that would have been very yeah that would have been cool yeah to just see her kind of grapple with that and i don't know maybe that would have caused too much growth or change or something but i i was sad that they just kind of ended it might have been too painful if it went on for longer and then and then that character goes away for whatever oh, reason that would probably be too heartbreaking because he is that's true incredibly charming that's a good point because we will soon be meeting Rose's guy, and he's very annoying. <laughs> and so, 
You're just kind of like, this is who we have an arc with. But that makes sense. You don't want to have a great guy and then lose him. Okay, a quick side note before we get to our closing paragraph. We were in Orlando. Well, we were in Florida, land of the Golden Girls. We were not in Miami, although Coco did frequently sing Orlando, Orlando. <laughs> I can't stop. I still am. And Which I feel like very entertaining. I feel as though we could see Miami from Orlando. It's pretty flat. For how flat? Yes. We were Unbelievably up, flat. And we on I think I was that was the highest I've ever well, that floor of the hotel, that was the highest floor I've ever been on in a hotel. Definitely oh, not the yeah. highest I've ever been in a hotel. <laughs> the highest floor. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was hot. And we could see for 100,000 miles because there is not even an anthill in Florida, apparently. Yeah, we were at CrimeCon for our true crime show, Murder in the Rain, but we also got to talk to a lot of people about our show. Yeah, so... It was terrific. Yeah, we want to say hi to new listeners that maybe we met there. They were so cool. Everyone was like excited. <laughs> they either had someone in their life that's obsessed with Golden Girls or they are... Just my explanation of, you know, sometimes we just need a break from true crime. You know, when you spend all day looking at crime scene photos or reading police reports, it's nice to find comfort with the girls. And so many people were receptive to that. They loved the artwork. They love that it's you and I, you know, so if you're already listening to Murder in the Rain, then it's like, oh, two of the people from that. Great. So that was super cool and exciting. So welcome to all the new people. And thank you for listening and sharing. And a highlight of the trip for both of us was that we got to meet in person our friend Tommy. Recycling. Who you guys might know. We talked about, it feels like two minutes ago slash eight months ago. I don't even know when. When we came back for season four and we were thanking Tommy because we became internet friends because of the show. So we've chatted. We've had phone calls. And he sent a care package yeah, when I was recovering. Exactly. Which was We've lovely. sent Christmas things, like all sorts of stuff. And he lives in Orlando. And so we were able to meet up for dinner. And he gave us this beautiful coloring book that's like the special edition or something of Golden Girls. Yeah. And we hugged and we cried. The coloring book is so nice. I'm afraid to like paint or paint. I know, it. Like, right? It's a painting. Yeah, I don't know what to do with this thing. And it's gorgeous. Coco started looking through it and he was like, wait, I don't know what that's from. I can't look through this yet. There's mm -mm. spoilers. <laughs> So, in a, yeah. so I'll, I'll have to monitor which pages he goes through. But it was so great. It was just. He was, I, a, he was a delight. He was, was perfect. He was exactly as we knew he would be. And it, and it was I mean, I an experience like that, an encounter like meeting someone that I really like don't actually know. Yeah. Is just so always so dicey. Oh, but, yeah. But I did have a great feeling about. Oh, yeah, him, I knew. And it, and it worked out great. It was it was we were so busy that it was kind of brief and it was at night and it was after a long day. Of, yeah. Of being at the convention. But. It was awesome. It was so cool. It yeah. was just like, I remember taking a moment to sit there and just go, my job has allowed me and paid for me to travel across the country to go to this event, to meet all these amazing people. And because of this other thing that we create, it's connected us to this person who we're now having dinner with. And it was just so beautiful. And it's like, this is my friend. Like, yeah. Truly, I consider him a friend. Yeah, he'll always be a friend. And, Whenever we're around here, or if he comes up yeah. here, like we're friends. Yeah. And so it's just, I don't know. It was just a really beautiful moment. So thank you to all the new people we met. It was awesome. And thank you to Tommy for meeting up with us. Hopefully we met uh, your expectations. 
Like, oh, God, these people. Yeah, I, hope so. I hope I don't eat gross, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> I think a highlight would be, you know, we talked about his job. We talked about our jobs. And then you two bonded over. Oh, we'd both seen the film Exit to Eden in the theater with our fathers. <laughs> Separately, of course. And for those that don't remember that movie. Can you please? It's a book that I think was written by Anne Rice under a pseudonym way back, maybe in the early 80s, the 70s. I don't know. Gary Marshall decided to turn it into a sex comedy, sort of, in like 1994. Dan Aykroyd, Rosie O'Donnell are in it. I am a huge Rosie O'Donnell fan at the time because of A League of Their Own. Dan Aykroyd, for obvious reasons, Ghostbusters. <laughs> and so it looks like a silly movie. We go there. and The I, trailer I, was really like, uh, like kind yeah. of like a, a sexual undertone but but funny because they are awkward like you would never imagine Rosie O'Donnell or Dan Aykroyd ever having sex so the idea of them being in like bondage type clothing is funny because it's so out of their realm is what it looked like to me and it's so uncomfortable it is so uncomfortable with the sex that it's portraying (laughs) Gary Marshall is not a sex man (laughs) was not rest in peace I loved him I I was one of his very good friends at the end. Not true. You went to his house. I went to his house a couple of times. For work. For work. <laughs> he, was very, he was a very cool guy. And there's just a lot of like uh, S&M dominance, spanking, food place, sexual stuff. An Australian man's butt for an extended period of time. You Tommy guys... knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Paul Mercurio's butt. I knew that dude's name. We knew Because you're like, I remember that. I remember baby. that butt. I remember mm-hmm. that. Hey. That butt. Who forgets a good butt? I really like, too, because I've not seen that movie and you guys got talking about what we'll keep it as clean as possible for a family show. But we'll just say nipples plus butter plus cinnamon right next to dad. (laughs) That was really enjoyable to watch the two of you share that very niche memory. And I think too, slash trauma for me, at least I think maybe for both of us in, in ways that was like kind of a formative movie. Mm. It, just the the content of it was like not like this just some of it not the, right. not for me not like the bondage stuff I guess I, I mean formative in that it was a kind of humiliating mm. it was still a sex movie yeah and pivotal we, maybe and we were it was pivotal more than formative it wasn't what I wanted <laughs> but you know who's in it Hector Elizondo baby well, of course if Gary's directing sexiest man alive people's sexiest man alive. He's, Wait, was he's, he really? He's all no, in my mind. Oh, <laughs> the sexiest man ever. Never wore a rug in his life. Bald <laughs> as f. So bald it's smooth. There's not even any hair there. Princess Diaries. He's great, right? So that was our time in Florida. <laughs> yeah, that was. Our, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and it was awesome. Romantic relationships can be scary. The other person might trigger our own insecurities or unfortunate histories. What someone new may bring to the table might highlight what therapists call your own sh**. I couldn't feel more safe and secure in my life and relationship with Coco, but that doesn't mean my fears of abandonment, unlovability, or burdenship don't rear their ugly heads from time to time. So instead of breaking up with that person because they can't see how you look or hear how you laugh, you should do what Blanche did and allow yourself to be vulnerable. Try to break down your own walls to understand why something like that may be an issue. I'm not saying to ignore red flags, just saying that before you run away from something potentially great, you stop and unravel the transference that may be taking place. 
As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when Rose's relationship with Ernie gets a little too hard in The Impotence of Being Earnest. Did you see my tiny horse picture I sent you from the parade? Did I tell you what um, the lady said when she passed with that horse? No. And right as she comes trotting by at like a mile an hour, she's like, his name's Bill and he's a pill. (laughs) Then they just kept going. You could see her like, come on, Bill. Oh, my God. (laughs) Ma'am, I don't think you're allowed to be that annoyed at a tiny horse. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the Constitution. Can I borrow Bill the pill for a birthday party? Ah. I need the little sucker from the dentist. Yes. I always love it because they'll let me do it. And I can just sit there. Yeah. My lord. Know, sorry. Oh, so humble. <laughs> baby Jane. Baby Jane. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to find another clip. That's oh, a punishment. I thought you had, I thought you had <sighs> like several. I do. I okay. <laughs> little scamp trying to say except for when we remake the bad seed yes. do it right mm-hmm. we got to make the girl older like 18 19 and make her real sexy <laughs> <laughs> that's right deep reference there that's like yeah you have to have seen orphan and know the cast of it <laughs> and know, remember the twist children of the corn three urban, urban harvest. harvest she needs help with court Corching, suddenly Rose come up. Oh my gosh. You, and you might want to retake that. Well, line. yeah, you don't have to <laughs> laugh. Uh, it's because my stupid fingies. Uh, uh, Alan, Alan, Alan. The little girl from Halloween, the original, gets shot in the chest through an ice cream cone. Oh my God. This is a family show. Well, she was a kid and she was and eating she ice, ice cream. cream. Yeah, so. <laughs> Family friendly. Is that good enough for you? Now I've said the right number. As if that's important. I'm sorry, I was writing I was writing something. Oh, boopy boop boop. Dear sorry. diary. No. I have a stinky fart hole. Oh my god. <laughs> oh god, not again. No, I have this pen. I don't have my original pen. Not this again. This is a daily occurrence, my man. I know. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Oh, I see. <laughs> I mean, I just have to go f- myself. <laughs> go on to own a California vineyard and orchard garden. Nope. Stupid. That's not how you read that word. Orchid, you f***ing moron. California vineyard and orchid. Orchid garden. And she is, in fact, a music lover. Not just because Blanche said... Sh- oh, my God. Not just because Blanche said so. Blanche said so. And not just because Blanche said, sh- oh my god! So, quick side note before we get to our closing, closing. This is Carol Channing, <laughs> <laughs> or Rita Moreno, That's actually. Right. Or uh, do they all talk like that? This is Stalker Channing. It is. I never know. Is my is it good what I'm doing? I don't know. And then you're like, hey, do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's funnier if it's twice and That's it seems true. planned. And then certainly it'll be at the end. Obviously. The last thing you hear in this episode. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. 
Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister. <laughs> oh, my God. Hmm. That's incredible. I wow. don't even know how he did that.